0: Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world well good morning from my side it is great to be here some of you know that we had a bit of a COVID scare last sunday just so you know we did go for tests and we are negative we haven't like cut short a quarantine time we actually weren't COVID positive Uh, but we got to show you the message from our previous national leader donovan could say that we were going to show you uh, this coming sunday and i believe that many people were deeply impacted by it surely certainly i was Um, and just the conversations that i've had with donovan over the last Uh, 16, 17 months, I have continued to be absolutely amazed at his sincere, legitimate, what I believe is supernatural strength that he has continued to find in God. So it's not just being a strong person, even though he is a very strong person, and it's not just being positive and optimistic, even though he is. um, There is a very, very real, in my opinion, example of being anchored and strengthened in God, even though you've effectively been given A death sentence. So, if you didn't watch this last week, I'd encourage you uh, to go to our website and to take a look at the video. We are finishing our series on the Sermon on the Mount for this season. So, we're wrapping it up today with the last message. We're not done with the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to come back to this at some stage because there's still chapter six and chapter seven from the book of Matthew. Uh, But that's how intense and how much uh, of a manifesto I believe that Jesus actually unpacked in the three chapters that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. We've only been tackling chapter five, um, and if you haven't yet actually gone and read through it by yourself, I can't encourage you enough because it really does string together. I think too often, we look at single passages by themselves, or we look at a verse, or we look at a sentence, or we look at a phrase, and if we don't appreciate the full context, I think we can actually miss the most dramatic, supernatural vision that is actually being cast by Jesus. It is His manifesto for human flourishing, for living in a different kingdom, for living a different way, and, and what it would look like to actually live with a different heart, to actually have what we would call a regenerated heart that is touched and transformed by God. I'm taking a look at the last two passages in Matthew chapter 5 today, and we've simply titled it, uh, Resist, Revenge, Respond, Resist, revenge, respond. If you uh, do have the version Bible app on your phone, you can also take a look at the notes there and download them. Uh, I'm kind of combining what I was gonna share last week and today into one. Uh, so I'm gonna try and get as much as I can across. But if ever there was a passage where we need to understand the heart, this is it. In my opinion, what I'm about to take a look at is probably one of the most challenging difficult, uh, mess-with-your-head passages in the Bible. Um, It's from Jesus' mouth, not mine. But again, I think we need to understand the context, and I think we need to try and, and live with some of the tensions that might exist with, again, the heart that he's trying to get across. By means of introduction, some of you are aware that we're a little bit under two weeks away from remembering an event that, for many of us, has kind of provided a divider in our lives as before 9-11 and since 9-11. So the 20th anniversary is 13 days away, and those of you that are probably over the age of 30, I imagine, can kind of remember life before 9-11 and life after 9-11. It's a day where a little over 3,000 people were killed between New York and Pennsylvania and Washington, D.C., but it's also a day since when... Estimates range from a few hundred thousand to 1.2 million people that have been killed, in part in a response to what happened nearly 20 years ago. The last hundred years, some estimate, have been the most violent ever, killing in the region, some estimates put in the region of 187 million people in the last hundred years, most of those civilians. Some of you know that with drone strikes, the estimates are anything from five to 25 to 50 people, uh, innocent civilians, are killed for every terrorist that is killed, many of those children. Those of you that are familiar with history throughout Africa would know that it gets a lot less air time. If you think of the genocide in South Sudan, if you think about the Angolan War, if you think about, uh, I think it's close to a million people that were killed in Mozambique, up until 1992 Even today over 500 refugees were reported this morning as having arrived on an Italian island from Libya Many of them showing signs of having been beaten and violently treated Syria hundreds of thousands potentially that have been killed in civil war That's just the last few years not to mention going back over the last century as we look at World War one World War two etc now My responsibility is not to comment, I don't believe, on the politics and the righteousness or unrighteousness of those events, but to say that in my opinion, revenge does not work. You hurt me, I don't just hurt you back, I make sure you pay for it, like extra. You threaten us, I mean even now, with the attack on the Kabul airport this past week, 170 people killed plenty more injured, amongst them 12 soldiers, Biden's, President Biden's response is, we will hunt you down and make you pay. I get it, but we've been making them pay. We, I mean, I, I'm, they've been making them pay for the last 20 years. Is it working? Can we overcome hatred with hatred? Can we overcome violence with violence? Can we overcome the dark with darkness. So on that lighthearted note, Jesus goes into the next section of our look at the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 42. I'll wrap up with the last section towards the end. He says, you have heard the law that says, the punishment must match the injury. I like the way that it's described in the New Living Translation, because it really does sum up what we're about to look at. The, the punishment must match The injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this is reported in many places in the Old Testament. But I say, this is Jesus speaking, do not resist an evil person. And in case this messes with your head, it's messed plenty with mine. I I don't know how many hours I've spent researching and studying what we're about to take a look at. And so I apologize in advance that what I'm gonna explain to you is a very, very small piece or portion of the material that's out there wrestling over these passages. But I say, do not resist an evil person. Some some argue that that means do not violently resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. Just by the way, if this doesn't mess with your head a little bit, like if you can just instantly dismiss this and excuse it, I think you're not thinking deeply enough. Just putting it out there. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, which they were allowed to, they were under Roman uh, oppression and, um, I forget the other word, anyway, (laughs) uh, carry it two miles and give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow Now, in case you missed anything else, the big idea that I want to get across that I think Jesus is getting across in this passage and in the next passage that we'll read a little bit later on is that he's not instituting a new law, but a new heart. And I think that that's where we tend to get unstuck with this passage. Certainly, that's where I have gotten unstuck over the years, and this has been one of the passages that I've actually been the most uh, intimidated by trying to interpret and by trying to make sure that I understand properly and can and apply into today's context. And I think especially because we, we tend to read it literally, and, and so we think, so, okay, so if someone punches me, should I literally turn the other cheek and be punched and beat up? And sh- Can I defend my family if they're being attacked? If someone's trying to kill or, 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 or abuse someone, that's to be, like, like we wrestle over those things, and I think some people then on the surface think, okay, maybe Jesus was implementing a new law. So don't resist. Uh, turn the other cheek. Let them rape and maim and, and do it. And I don't believe, this is just the summarized version. I do not believe that that is what Jesus was trying to get across. I think that he was challenging the heart of his hearers to say, and I believe that this passage is written in the context of persecution, because you would have even heard the intro uh, on the video, which, which reminds us that Jesus was speaking to when you are persecuted, not if. He's speaking in the context of people that were, were being persecuted and were going to be persecuted, and I think that he was trying to get, a, get at a heart that says that you're not going to be able to win anybody over by fighting fire with fire, by fighting hatred with hatred, by, by fighting violence with violence, and I think that there were going to be times where, he, where, where his Holy Spirit was going to lead people to surrender to the cross, just like he did. Jesus didn't respond violently when they tried to arrest him. In fact, he picked up the ear that Peter lobbed off from the God in the garden, and he put it back on. Again, I don't think that he's implementing a new law. I think that he was challenging, in my language, the junk out of our hearts, in terms of are you even open to not retaliating? Are you even open to not taking revenge? Are you even open to, to some of the examples that he's giving here in this passage? So, three ideas today. The first is resist the real enemy. Resist the real enemy. When he says, I say to you do not resist an evil person, I don't think he's saying that you cannot protect or defend under under certain circumstances and with and with appropriate means. I don't have time to get into what that might look like, but if you're really interested, there is a phenomenal book written by a New Testament scholar called Preston Sprinkle, that is his name, called Nonviolence And he goes into incredible detail, including can you belong to the military? Can you belong to the police force? Can you resist an intruder? All all that kind of stuff. But what I wanna highlight is that I think that Jesus was saying that there's a greater enemy than the one that you think you're resisting. And I think that what Jesus was trying to get at is that what happens inside of us is actually more significant than what happens to us. Now, I don't think that you're saying it doesn't matter what happens to you, and, I, and I'm not suggesting that for a moment. And again, there are people that have been ravaged, abused, exploited. We live, in my opinion, sorry if this sounds melancholic, in a messed up world. You just have to read the news. Yeah. We live in a messed up world. I don't think that that's okay. I don't think that that's God's will. But I do think that while we're this side of eternity, I think that God cares more about what's happening in our hearts So what's happening inside us than only what is happening to us? Paul, the apostle, one of the early church leaders, wrote along similar lines in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 17. So he said, never pay back evil with more evil. Again, I don't think that he's doing away with justice, and I'll take a look at that in a moment. But he's saying, don't repay evil with evil. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I want to repay evil with evil. In fact, I have like, there's something in my personality that ha- my default is heavily towards justice. excepting when it comes to me, then I want a lot of grace and mercy. But, but, but I think through a lens of justice like you cannot believe. I hate unfairness. I hate when people take advantage of others, when people are exploited. I, I hate when the vulnerable are abused and misused. Like, injustice freaks me out. And I think there is a place for justice. But justice does not mean or equal repaying evil with evil. And evil is a heart attitude. The courts and a a government, civil authorities can impose justice without repaying evil with evil. I do think that a kangaroo court repays evil with evil. I do think a vigilante is repaying evil, and I get that. I, just, just so you know, I get that. In fact, the irony is that while I've been studying this for the last few weeks and, and even reading, I, I've gone through this whole book of Press and Sprinkles, Nonviolence, but at the same time, when I'm going to bed at night, and yesterday a little bit of spare time, so literally, I finished the book yesterday, and, and at the same time, I'm reading a book called *The Time to Kill. It's a novel, and it's all about a vigilante who murdered the two men that raped and, and, and beat up his, his daughter. And I'm like, there's some irony in this, in this whole thing. And just so you know, I relate to the, the father, okay? Like it's not hard for me to get that, but he was repaying evil with evil. He goes on to say, do things in such a way that, every, that everyone can see you are honorable. Is it possible that God actually wants the evidence of our hearts to achieve something more than just our own vindication? Than just our own being protected and, and getting away from. Is it possible that sometimes God, God actually has a bigger agenda at play? Verse 18, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. And we've spoken about this in the past. In other words, there are times where you've done everything you can and, and there's, people don't want peace and they're gonna resist and they're gonna fight. But, but let's, again, it's a hard issue. Have I done everything that I can to live at peace with all people? So, number one, resist the real enemy. Number two, leave revenge to God leave revenge to god matthew 5 38 says that you've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury an eye for eye and a tooth for tooth this was given to civil authorities in other words there is a place for justice but it became revenge when people took these verses in the old testament and applied it into a personal context well you knocked out my tooth i'm going to knock out your teeth you you punched me in the eye i'm going to blind you you took my sheep i'm going to take your cattle and so the problem with personal justice is that it is almost never just. I would argue ever. Because, again, our human nature says that I'm not just going to pay you back. I'm not just going to get even. I'm going to get extra. At least that's my heart if I haven't had a good quiet time. Right? Like, 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 if you, like if you hurt me I, I, like, I, don't, just, I don't just want to just, just do the same thing back to you I want to make you I, like President Biden I'm going to hunt you down and make you pay I'm going to so overwhelm you and so intimidate you that you'll, that you'll be so scared to ever do anything back again uh, guys I think that the human heart is incapable of justice we just want revenge and revenge tastes good for a season. But it can produce, not can, I believe it will produce a cancer in our souls. Revenge, does n- Revenge never settles offenses, it only ever escalates offenses. We're living in a world where, like where did it even begin? We don't know, but, but the Western world, the Middle East, The rich, the poor, like it's just continued to escalate, escalate, escalate. Racism seldom gets resolved. It gets paid back. Corruption, justice or revenge never settles offenses. It only escalates them. And that's why people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela stand out in recent history because these are people that chose to respond differently. They weren't passivists in the sense of being passive. They they manifested non-violent resistance. They did not repay hatred with hatred. They did not try and quench the darkness with more darkness, they did not try and overcome evil with evil, and by the way, I don't even think that they were trying to just get lacquer back. Okay, I won't respond, so they will make a fool out of you. I think that they were, I think that that to some extent, there'd been a revelation that this doesn't work. It doesn't work, because where does it end? Martin Luther King Jr was once quoted as saying that the world expects people to respond to violence with violence. They know what to do with this, but they don't know what to do when people respond to violence with nonviolence. I've gotta tell you, I I can remember so clearly the day of 9-11. I can remember where I was when I first heard and the disbelief and the shock, and then as I started to settle in, and like it was just, it was mind-blowing in a Western context. And I was in my human nature, incredibly happy with the idea of justice, of, of hunting them down. In fact, it was quite interesting for me, I was talking to my 16-year-old, I think earlier this week or last week, and she, she's like, who's Al-Qaeda and who's Osama bin Laden? I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, 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 this hasn't even been, you know, been, been a part of recent history for them, but for us it was this thing of, like, What? And I've got to say, you, we've been to the memorials in Manhattan. We went to the memorial in Washington, D.C. And I remember us being impacted as we went to the Pentagon and, and walked around the memorial and seeing the names of children that were killed. Listen, it moves you. So please don't hear what I'm not saying. In fact, that's why my human nature is, yes, pay them back. Put the fear of God into them. Well, it's not the fear of God. It's the fear of the West but does it actually produce life? Does it actually bring freedom? Again, Preston Sprinkle in his book, Nonviolence, went on to explain about King that he didn't just spin spin out lyrical wisdom, he practiced what he preached. On one occasion, and there were many, but on one occasion, while King was delivering a speech, a a member of the American Nazi party walked up on stage and slugged him in the face. King was not back, but regained his composure, stood up, and dropped his arms. And the man proceeded to pound King in the face until the crowd intervened and hauled the Nazi off to another room. Shortly after, King visited the Nazi in the room and reassured him that there would be no harm done to him. King said that he was not going to press charges for the attack and that he had forgiven the man. King then returned to the stage holding a bag of ice to his face to finish his speech. No one in the room had doubts about who won the fight this doesn't mean that we ignore injustice this doesn't mean that we don't mourn evil we should mourn evil it doesn't mean in my opinion that we avoid protecting the vulnerable or holding people accountable that is justice but rather that it is done from a place of grace and mercy in God and our identity in God and our security in God and us remembering that it is him that will ultimately bring ultimate justice. Revenge is God's. In fact, in Romans 12 verse 19, Paul goes on to say, dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I'll pay them back, says the Lord. Now, you might be wondering about those four examples that Jesus gave. Were they literal? Were they metaphorical? Were they uh, hyperbole? In other words, were they being exaggerated? Now, I tend to think that they were probably a little bit more on the figurative side than the literal side, and that there probably was a level of, of um, hyperbole in order to exaggerate the, the impact, just like when a few verses earlier Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He wasn't being literal. And if your right eye, which is your best eye, caused you to sin, gouge it out. We don't believe that he was being literal because we'd all be walking around without hands, without eyes, without tongues, for sure, and all kinds of other stuff. But, but, you see, we can take that approach and then too easily excuse what Jesus was actually trying to get at. So, let me take a look at those four examples very briefly. The first one, I believe, is that he was referring to being insulted. Matthew 5, 39 says, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek, also, now, to help you understand this, this was written in the context of a Middle Eastern Hebrew culture 2,000 years ago which had a, an extensively more intense honor-shame community than what we do. We think that we live in an honor-shame community and, and on social media you can shame people and hate and there's all kinds of vitriol, but, but, but we, don't even, we, we cannot even begin to imagine the extent of what it meant to live with honor or with shame in this time. And so to be smacked on the right cheek, think about this for a moment, and, and, and almost every scholar I read uh, took this approach, where, where for me to smack Dino on his right cheek. Dino, quickly stand up over here. I know, I know so many of you would love this opportunity. Come on up, Dino, come on up, Dino. I mean, if you know Dino well, at least you'd know that you'd wanna do this, but, but uh, no, I'm only joking, I'm only joking, I'm only joking. Um, so, so this is Dino's right cheek here, right? So if I'm, gonna, if I'm gonna smack or slap Dino on the right cheek, I have to somehow get it to this side. And so, and so the scholars argue that is to give a backhand. <laughs> Just so you know, they want me <laughs> to slap you on no, no. the back. <laughs> <G>. <laughs> yes, I do, okay, thank you Dino. So, so it's, it's to give a backhand slap onto the person which was considered doubly insulting as, as a open-handed slap. Or a punch. To, it's, it's, it is to so dehumanize a person. It is, it is to so scorn a person as being inconsequential. You're nothing to just, to just slap someone on the right cheek. It, it, was, it was less, many argue, an act of violence as, was, as what it was an act of complete contempt and shame and insult. And Jesus, I'm, I think he's saying if they insult you, if they shame you, don't retaliate. You're not trying to overcome evil with evil. Turn the other cheek, let them shame you again. You don't have to vindicate yourself, I'll vindicate you. That means that there has to be a supernatural security and identity in God. If you can read the Sermon on the Mount and think, yeah, okay, that's, that, that's what it means to be a good person, I'll be, okay. you are, cl- uh-uh. we need God. You cannot just be a good, not if you're actually living in these contexts, the second example, I believe, is about intimidation. Matthew 4, uh, 5 verse 40 says, if are suit in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. Now again, this isn't the normal context. Most of us are here today with more than one layer of clothing, and chances are we have more clothes at home. In this context, there were people that would have literally had the, the undergarment, and then their coat, which was an outer, outer garment, which would have in many cases actually being the persons like sleeping bag as well so so they would actually sleep it would serve as a blanket for them at night especially those who were poor and and even more so those who were being persecuted for their faith and so jesus is saying hey if, they, if if they feel like they can get away with taking your undergarment give them your outer garment as well which which if this was literal meant that they would have to walk out of court basically naked or like in their skivvies in their underwear now i think that the that the idea that he's trying to get across is that how we respond to people that are trying to intimidate and take stuff from us is that we actually give to people more than they're trying to take. I don't think he's suggesting that you walk around naked because that would be awkward for a whole bunch of of other reasons. But I do think that he's saying don't don't give into intimidation. They think they can take that, hey, you're free to give more. Similarly, we see in the next example, which I think was in some ways referring to inferiority, in verse 41, he says, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles, give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. In fact, a, cl- a cliche that is used around the world came out of this particular passage saying, go the extra mile. Well, again, they, were, they, were being, they had been possessed and oppressed. They, they, um, they had been invaded by the Roman authorities. And these Roman authorities were allowed to make anybody at any moment stop what they were doing and carry their gear for a mile. That's what they were allowed to do. And Jesus is saying, you don't have a choice about the first mile, but you do have a choice about the second. And again, some would argue that this is the way that Rome was won, where a supernaturally Joyful or generous response was given to a grotesque oppressive military invasion, and slowly but surely people started to actually see the difference in followers of Jesus' hearts. Where they where they they, they didn't have the freedom to choose for the first mile, but they had the freedom to choose for the second mile. The fourth example is that of what we might call exploitation. In verse 42, he says, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. And again, it would appear as though Jesus is saying that the righteous are to give to those who are actually attempting to hurt them through borrowing. Now, you might say, so is that like a whole new rule? Because there are a lot of people that are trying to hurt me. There are a lot of people that try and exploit me and that try and take stuff from us. In fact, if you drove here today, there's a good chance that that you would have... Like, like you can't go from point A to point B without, without having the opportunity to give all the time. Like people, people are asking for stuff all the time. It is impossible, literally speaking, to give to every single person who asks. But are, we, are our hearts willing to do whatever God tells us to do? Are we willing to give to that person who actually thinks that they're about to exploit us and do us in? If God were to tell us, hey, do it, are we willing to do that? Because, again, it's not a new law. It's a new heart. It's a new attitude. He was wanting us to see things differently. Now, now we don't have time to get into this, but just so you know, in case you're wondering, but, but shouldn't we? Because a humanistic approach would say, just give everything. Just, just help everyone. And then others would argue back, yeah, but what about empowerment? I get that. Biblically speaking, I do think that Galatians 6 verse 2 and 6 verse 5 talk about the difference between a man-sized load and an extra man-sized load. There's a time to help someone carry a burden that they cannot carry by themselves, and there's a time where someone has to take responsibility for that which they are able to take responsibility for, but there are absolutely occasions for, for relief, so emergency relief and mercy, and there are times for... Uh, for long-term development. That, that, that's like a whole nother conversation and, and it's an important one. But I don't think that that's what Jesus was getting at. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10 also said effectively, those who are unwilling to work will not eat. This is, this is Paul, again, writing to a group of Christians who, who have a, peop, a bunch of people in their church that are busybodies, they're gossiping, they don't wanna do anything, they're lazy, but then they're wanting to kind of be, be bailed. And he's like, whoa, 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 if you don't work, you don't eat. But I like that, that word, willing, Because again, we live in a country with an extremely high unemployment rate, but there are a lot of people that are willing to work. So again, that's a different conversation. I don't think that that's actually what Jesus was getting at you. Number one, resist the real enemy. Number two, leave revenge to God. And lastly, number three, respond with mercy and grace. He goes on in verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Just so you know, there was no law that said that but he's referring to to a passage that people had taken out of context. Not that we would ever do that. (laughs) And so they thought that it was okay to love those who loved them and to hate those who hated them. But I say, guys, we cannot miss these words. This this has gotta be arguably the most radical statement. Outside of the gospel, this has to be probably the most radical statement to a 21st century mind, and I think it would have been exactly the same to a first century mind. Love your enemies. You can't do that naturally. Yeah, yeah. Of course we can. Can we just all we'll just can we all just get along? Can we all just love one another and tolerate one well? I think that outside of God, outside of our hearts being melted by the unconditional, undeserved love of God, I think it's impossible. Yeah, but there are all kinds of liberal progressive people that just love everybody. Sure, but do they love the people that they disagree with very strongly? So, so can someone who, who, who's fighting for racial equality love the person who's fighting for racism? I listened to, I listened to an interview the other day from an African American gentleman who has spent years getting to know and forming friendships with members of the Ku Klux Klan and he's getting opposition from people that would agree w- with his fight against racism but can't st- like they are they are freaked out by the fact that he would even dare to engage in conversation so so you may argue for LGBTQ rights but how do you feel about the person who you consider to be a small-minded, uh, narrow-minded, bigoted, prejudiced, Christian, Bible-thumping, whatever? There's very little love there. Do, do you hear what I'm saying? We can seem so liberal because we're for women's rights, for LGBTQ rights, for against racism, and all these things. Okay, but, but can that same, p- it, it is amazing to me how intolerant, tolerant people are of what they consider to be intolerance. And that's understandable because that's human nature. Because again, it's still us and them. It's do you agree with me or don't you agree with me? And God is saying, you need to love people who completely disagree with you, who, who are on the complete opposite side of this whole thing. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. In other words, he's saying, guys, you think you, listen, Please, you have to understand. Again, first century Jews, they were looking for, when they thought that the Messiah was coming, they thought it would be a, a military leader who was going to deliver them militarily. So, so physically, from this physical oppression from the Romans. For, and they were thinking, Jesus is it, Jesus is it, Jesus is it. And he's like, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. I can just see the air just like, just, just like coming out of their lungs. Like, What? It, it would be so counterintuitive for them to hear these words and to hear him say to do good to those who hurt you. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. By the way, rain's a good thing in those days. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that, but you ought to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. In fact, I like how Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase, the message version paraphrase, puts it at the very end of the section that you'll see uh, on the screen. says, let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. Came across a statement from Peter Scazzaro recently where he says, for Jesus, enemies were not interruptions to the spiritual life, but often the very means by which we might experience deeper communion with God. So, as we bring things into land, I know that there's so much (laughs) that I've thrown at you. And I've gotta tell you, this has been messing with my head and my heart over the last few weeks as I've been chewing, as I've kind of like wanted to avoid getting to this passage and then spent a lot of time in this passage. And I don't know if you ever find that sometimes the very thing that you're trying to understand just gets tested constantly. I mean, I feel like my heart's been tested so much. I don't know if it's been tested more than normal or if I'm just more aware of it because I'm actually reading this stuff. But it's amazing to me how, how much my sense of justice wells up when I feel like something unethical or lacking in integrity is being done. I can't tell you how much, how, how burdened I am by, by the vulnerable. Every time I read the news, When I think of of children being abused and hurt, when I think of of people in power being able to exploit and continue to to abuse and misuse people that that are inferior in the sense of having, not having the same kind of power to actually resist, it freaks me out. And by the way, I do think that it freaks God out. I just think that He's able to be the righteous judge. And the challenge for me is am I able to forgive? Am I able to love? Am I able to pray? I think praying for those that are hurting you is arguably the single greatest test. And not praying that they'll be wiped out or that the fleas of a thousand buffaloes would infest their armpits. No, no, I mean like God, would you help them to see how good you are? Would you help them to? God, would you melt their hearts with your love and your goodness? Would you make them aware of their need for you? I don't mean like, like, like cliched prayers or patron. I'm, I'm not even saying that you ask God to help you feel a warm and fuzzy. No, no, God, they need you. I need you, they need you. If I can pray for an enemy, and there are so many stories that, that actually, to be honest, would be offensive to your sensibilities, I mean, I've read stories of of, of people that have been raped, people that have been, been mutilated, that have been able to forgive their attackers. And you read that and it's actually like you almost can't, it's too offensive to even celebrate the positive side because to our human sensibilities, it is so outrageous. But for the grace of God, where we are allowing Him to do something in us slowly but surely, that supernaturally we're able to love those who hate us that we're able to forgive those who hurt us that we are able to actually pray for those that have done damage to us so i want to encourage you to stand with me as you do that the last quote that i want to mention is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a man that was ultimately killed by hitler but but he was one of the few jewish uh, sorry one of the few german christians that was strongly opposing the third reich and what was taking place during the second world war. And he said that evil meets an opponent for which it is not a match. Evil meets an opponent. You see, Satan can deal with hatred because actually he's stirring that up in you anyway. he He can deal with evil. He can deal with violence. He can deal with revenge. He cannot deal with love. Evil meets an opponent for which it is not a match. So this is my encouragement to you. Jesus was not instituting a new law. He was instituting a new heart. And so before we move out of here today, because you might think, yeah, that's great. Oh, jeez, I've got some questions. That's all fine. But before we go out, before you log off, for those of you that are online, I want to encourage you to close your eyes for a few moments. And as honestly as you can, To say, God, search my heart. Search me and know my heart. No one else might know what's going on. You may not even know what's going on in your heart. Would you be bold enough to say, God, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me on the path of everlasting life. Many of you will be familiar with the most famous model of prayer that Jesus shared with his disciples, which is, our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, give us our daily bread and forgive us as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Is there anybody that comes to your mind anybody where the Holy Spirit, not Jason, the Holy Spirit would be saying, hey you need love you need to forgive you need to pray forgiveness is seldom all at once or once and for all it's a process, you, you may keep coming back to this again and again and again but over time you'll find that a work is being done in your hearts Father, I commit us to you in Jesus name Help us to recognize your voice and your invitation. Help us to think the way you think. Help us to see the way you see. Help us, please, to love the way you love. Help us to bless the way you bless. Help us to resist the real enemy and the work, the, the damage that he's wanting to do in our hearts. Help us to leave revenge to you and help us to respond with grace and mercy. God, some of us standing here, some of us watching this, God, we need a supernatural amount of help and vision and hope and determination from you. God, we need you. We cannot love sincerely without you. Please, do in us what only you can do and help us to obey you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.